Can you imagine this morning, two cruise missiles hit this Freedom Square, dozens of killed ones. This is the price of freedom. We are fighting just for our land and for our freedom. Despite the fact that all large cities of our country are now blocked, nobody is going to enter and intervene with our freedom and country. And believe you me, every square of today, no matter what it's called, is going to be called as today Freedom Square in every city of our country. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. That's the voice of an interpreter for Volodymyr Zelensky choking up as he delivers the Ukrainian president's defiant words to the European Union in Brussels on Tuesday. It was another powerful performance by Zelensky, speaking remotely from Kyiv, half-shaven in a t-shirt, refusing to back down even as Russian troops close in on his capital and the city's frightened residents huddle in air raid shelters to escape the invaders' bombs. The Ukrainians, from all accounts, are putting up a fierce resistance, volunteering in droves to wage battle using aging guns, Molotov cocktails, and in some cases their very bodies to slow the Russian advance. But how long can the Ukrainians hang on? And how far is Vladimir Putin prepared to go to crush them? We'll talk to Mark Savchuk, a coordinator for Ukrainian journalists, about what's going on right now in Kyiv. And then we'll talk to Daniel Hoffman, a former CIA station chief in Moscow, about what to make of Putin's bizarre, erratic, but unbelievably brutal behavior on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Well, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isgov, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. Watching what's unfolding in Ukraine right now is so horrific, but I think it is worth once again taking a moment out uh, to just uh, talk about Zelensky uh, emerging as, as I said the other day, this Winston Churchill-like figure on the world stage. It does remind me, uh, not to get too literary here, of the words of Shakespeare, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and others have greatness thrust upon them. Zelensky is the classic case of a guy who's had greatness thrust upon him, and man, is he risen to the occasion. Yeah, pretty different from the last foreign policy crisis that Joe Biden had to deal with when the um, leader of Afghanistan fled the country and didn't stick around to defend um, his people. It is inspiring. And on the other side of it, you know, the Russians, the sort of vaunted uh, blitzkrieg that people were ex expecting has not materialized. And there is continues to be evidence uh, that that invasion is faltering. I've been reading stories about, you know, these uh, poorly trained conscripts in the Russian army um, who have been essentially surrendering en masse, that they've been sabotaging their own vehicles so that they wouldn't have to go further um, in the invasion. The Russian Air Force 
uh, which I think must be the maybe the second biggest air force in the world, certainly one of the biggest air forces in the world, has not been able to gain air superiority over uh, Ukraine. So, you know, I don't know how it is that uh, Vladimir Putin launched this invasion without knowing whether his um, his military was uh, ready for it. And it'll be some, it'll, interesting to he- hear Dan Hoffman talk about this uh, in, our, in our interview with him. Meanwhile, the West and the Globe's reaction to and sa- efforts to sanction Russia are really uh, picking up even more steam with multiple business entities in the West announcing that they're divesting of various uh, investments in Russian companies, MasterCard and Visa announcing that they're cutting off services into Russia so that consequences are really coming home to roost in Moscow. And by the same token, the refugee crisis is only growing. I think more than 600,000 refugees have fled Ukraine right now. It's not inconceivable that those numbers are going to go up. The speed at which this is all happening is staggering. Mike, you discussed the kind of Winston Church, the Churchillian quality that Zelensky has. It was a different time, but it took Winston Churchill years to turn around the American public to support the UK while it was under siege by the Nazis during World War II. It's taken Zelensky about six days to unite the world. Well, there was a small thing like, you know, Pearl Harbor and then Hitler declaring war on America to turn around the American public. But everybody, of course, in the West was inspired by Churchill, just as people are being inspired by Zelensky right now. We were talking a moment ago about the Ukrainian resistance, which has been a lot fiercer than anybody imagined. We did get this uh, war bulletin that's being put out by the Ukrainian intelligence service on a regular basis every day. And while it's obviously impossible to verify some of these numbers, they are keeping track of all the losses there. The Ukrainians are inflicting on the Russians and uh, looking at it, 55,710 Russians killed, 200 prisoners taken, 29 airplanes down, destroyed or damaged, 29 helicopters, 198 tanks destroyed and uh, damaged. It's pretty impressive if even a fraction of these numbers are true. The idea that uh, a overwhelmed military like the Ukrainians could be inflicting those kind of losses on the powerful Russian invading army is pretty striking. And just one other point I'd like to uh, point out from this uh, Ukrainian war room bulletin. The Ukrainians are obviously trying to call attention to what they are seemingly legitimately describing war crimes by the Russians, uh, bombing of civilian areas, uh, trying to trick the Ukrainians by waving white flags. And then when the Ukrainians approach them, you know, opening fire and gunning them down. And uh, just reading uh, from this uh, Bullen, which is pretty interesting, a statement from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine uh, talking about the uh, war crimes uh, charges that the Ukrainians are bringing to the International Criminal Court. And I'll just read, uh, Russia's top military and political leadership is bound to appear before the International Criminal Court and be held accountable for every crime committed. This will be the Nuremberg trial of the 21st century. I don't know if we'll ever get that, but- um, Yeah, look, I- 
I think we have to reiterate uh, that we don't know the accuracy of, of this document, which does come from Ukrainian uh, intelligence. But nevertheless, what we do know, speaking of, of war crimes, is that Putin's way of war is about as brutal as you can imagine. Um, and we we saw it in Chechnya, in, in Syria to some extent. And the the more to a big that, extent in Syria, yeah, Let's to remember a, to Aleppo, a big, Aleppo exactly. Yeah. And and I think the the more that the Ukrainians uh, are able to resist Russian forces in this first phase of the invasion, the more likely he's going to Putin is going to double down on those really ruthless tactics. So I, ju- I just think we have to add this cautionary note that. Putin is probably not going to back down here. And so even if he doesn't prevail in the end, whatever prevailing means, I think it could get a lot uglier before this is resolved. And I think we have to all be uh, braced for that. And I'm, I'm sure the Ukrainian people are. Indeed. Well, look, we got two good guests here on this episode. One, a guy on the ground in Kiev will give us a little insight into what's going on. And then uh, we've got Dan Hoffman, who we've had on before, former uh, Moscow station chief for the CIA and a very shrewd analyst, a guy who's been tracking uh, Vladimir Putin for years. So let's get to it. We are now joined by Mark Savchuk in Kyiv itself. Mark is a uh, coordinator uh, for Ukrainian journalists trying to get uh, the message from Ukraine out to the world. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us, you are in Kyiv as we speak. We've all seen the horrific images of the bombardment of the city. What is going on in Kyiv right now? What are you seeing on the streets? So the whole city is basically like a, a military a group of people that is trying to defend itself. So half of the people are fighting the war and half of the people are uh, employed in administration tasks. So basically, this is like a, a logistics hub that is trying to supply Kiev with as much weapons as possible, as much military gear as possible, as much food and water as possible, uh, so that the uh, uh, brave soldiers in the front lines can repel the huge Russian army that is right here and on our land trying to uh, kill everything that moves, basically, because one person is completely mad. What is the situation with, as far as you know, with this Russian military convoy, a 40-mile convoy that we've been hearing about that's approaching yeah. uh, Kiev? How close is it? And how much apprehension is there in, in the city right now about the situation? What yeah. do you think uh, is going to happen? Well, uh, I'm not a military expert, so I don't know. I assume there's huge amounts of forces collecting right now in order to invade Kiev, because this is basically the last thing they they can do. They are incredibly badly managed, uh, as we can see, and lots of your military uh, analysts have already said that. So basically, they are stretched along the roads of the military supply trucks because they are very uh, they don't have enough fuel, they don't have enough food because they thought this will be a three-day operation and it's already day six and they, they haven't encircled Kiev. So, and clearly everyone knows what's happening right now. I mean, the, you, you see this POWs on camera saying that they didn't know what's going to happen. Obviously, well, <laughs> this is clearly a lie because I mean, how can you keep invading a country for six days and not know what you're doing? Come on, this is ridiculous. 
So basically, uh, what's happening right now is they will for uh, they're trying to amass as much forces uh, on western and eastern parts of Kiev in order to encircle it, and uh, well, the rest, as you know. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to be keep on fighting that huge force. So where are you right now? We, you, How are you uh, making sure that you're secure? How are you making sure that you have uh, communications and knowledge of what's uh, going on around in the city? Well, we're just reading the news. Uh, I can't I can't guarantee my security at any time, basically, because uh, anyone in the in the city can be killed. So it's impossible. And uh, basically, <laughs> we're just doing our best to, in order to, uh, as, I, as I already said, do our admin tasks in order to source the city with all the supplies that we need uh, in order to keep on fighting. So that's what's happening right now. Do you have a supply of weapons that you need to fight this invading Russian force? Where are you getting whatever weapons you have and what more do you need? Well, uh, I think if you just follow the news, you will see how much weapons are currently being sent to Ukraine. Basically, all our logistics line at the West are incredibly busy. So they keep on sending us weapons like NLAVs, Javelin missiles and uh, anti-aircraft missiles, etc., etc. So that's what's happening right now as we speak. But it's still not enough. (laughs) We need more because, as you said, a 40-mile-long supply line is clearly in need of lots and lots of weapons in order to destroy that. And if, as Ukraine, we want to survive, we need to s- destroy everything. I mean, you you should understand that <laughs> this is hardly a war of Russia on Ukraine. It's war of one person who is completely mad. He doesn't care. He just thinks that if he keeps on pressuring the Western countries, he will get away with it, as he got away with it with Georgia, as he got away with it with Crimea. Because all this, what's happening right now is because he wasn't stopped before. It's as simple as that. If you're on, if you're a journalist or, or anybody who's on Twitter in this country, yeah, and, I, yeah. I, and I'm assuming around the world, you're seeing this huge support, this huge yes. reaction, and people are changing their Twitter profiles to Ukrainian flags, yeah. and everyone is cheering on the Ukrainian people. And of course, what is happening all over Ukraine and in Kyiv is inspiring and incredibly moving. Yeah. But I wonder if there is a sense in which social media can distort the reality of the situation there. And as hard as Ukrainians are fighting and are willing to fight, that you are up against a huge and very powerful military. And that what really is needed is more weapons and more training yes. and and, and huma- more humanitarian assistance. And that that can be, that, that social media, as I said before, can kind of distort the reality. Well, yes and no. There's two things. We need lots more weapons. It's as simple as that. And lots more humanitarian aid. It's as simple as that. That's uh, thing number one. The thing, uh, thing number two is that economic sanctions as powerful as they are, uh, still need to be stronger. I'm sorry for that, because we need to destroy Putin now. We need to crumble Russian economy right now because it's going to be like too late if it's going to happen like in a year or so, because half of the Europe will lie in ruins. And like, do, do we really want to do that? Do we really want to wait a year until he kills hundreds of thousands of people? Or we can do this right now. Another thing you said is that this is a huge military force. It is huge in numbers, yes, but as U.S. military analysts have already said, on a number of occasions, Russian military has have performed 
extremely badly, not just badly, but extremely badly. For one thing, because Russian military is completely corrupt, because Russia is incredibly corrupt, is nowhere near as strong as it portrays to be, as, as we've already said. I mean, look, your military analysts have already said that a number of occasions Russian military have performed extremely badly because it's so so badly organized. This is the, the key to our success, so to speak, you know? So at least according to the, the reporting that I've read in advance, and I, I, you know, I hasten to add that I'm not a particularly a Ukraine expert, but at least according to the reporting that I'd read, you know, as of three months or six months ago, there was certainly a substantial portion of the Ukrainian population that had misgivings about the westward glances of the nation and that were, were uncertain about closer and closer affiliation with the European Union. Based on your kind of understanding of the population today, is that still a perspective? perspective widely held within the community? In other words, is there anyone in Ukraine that still, you know, possibly, let's say, regrets the uh, Europeanization, the westward looks of the government? Or has it has it kind of unified everyone in opposition to the yeah. Russian? Let me explain to you about this point. Uh, you should understand that Ukrainian media is not really, how should I put it, honest with people, so to speak. And what a lot of media in Ukraine that was owned by, and it still is, owned by oligarchs, they had a, a slightly anti-European line of communication in their media. Why? Because European rules and European way of doing things means there will be an effective uh, system of fighting corruption. And that means that their businesses will be affected. So they, what they would rather do is Europe not to join the European Union because their businesses won't be as profitable because anti-corruption system will be fighting with them, you see? And that is exactly what they were pushing in the media is that, you know, Europeanization is not as good as you might think. Obviously, with the war, these kind of things have gone into the second row, right? They're not, they're not important anymore. So it's a bit misleading thinking that Ukrainian people have been against going to the West. It's not true. They want to go to the West. We all yeah. saw the images of the hit on the TV tower today. Yeah. Uh, is TV down? Is the internet still functioning? It apparently is because we're talking via yeah, Zoom. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, they, they have fired two rockets and eventually they have managed to bring uh, some TV channels down. But still, you know, the Internet is working and uh, everything else is working, basically. So they actually what they managed to do is to kill five civilians during this airstrike. What's the mood among people there right now? Are they frightened? Are they emboldened? Are they... Look, uh, you know, all the people who have been frightened have already left the city because there's been like five days of evacuations, right? So people have been leaving the city and stuff. So people who are left, they want to fight. So basically the mood is, so to speak, well, you know, we're gearing up for uh, for a big fight. That's what I'm saying. Mark, you know, we've heard that, uh, that Putin that one of his goals may be to decapitate the Zelensky government, to remove Zelensky, yes. whatever that means exactly, and the rest of his government, and to put in essentially a puppet government. Yeah. A, any sense of who Putin would try to install in the seat of power in Kiev? And what would the, the reaction of the Ukrainian people be at that point? Would you expect there to be a long-term insurgency I mean, a, a war that continues, even if Putin is able to put in a new government that's loyal to Moscow. 
Yeah, well, obviously it's not going to happen. I mean, <laughs> look, you can't start a war with a country and then put some kind of a leader in there and think that everything's going to be fine. It's not going to be fine. To be honest, I just I don't want to think about this because I don't want to accept the thought that West is so fucking stupid. Yeah, to let this happen, because I mean, this is ridiculous. OK, he has killed so many lives. He, he has to stop right now. And Ukrainian army is fighting incredibly efficient with uh, Putin, with his army. And what the West should do is to support it and like stop this right now, basically. So you, you see that Ukrainian army is fighting him successfully, which just should destroy the myth that Russian army is so uh, you know, unstoppable and unbeatable, because it's not. Uh, you have seen how the POWs look like. I mean, you have seen footage of them. Does this look like, uh, you know, uh, uh, the most forceful army in, in the world? No, <laughs> there are 19-year-old kids that are dressed in basically, well, in garbage. I mean, you've seen the photos. So what the West should do is just keep on supporting Ukraine because basically Ukraine is fighting not just for their own country, but for the rest of Europe as well. Because if Mr. Putin is defeated here and now, this will be the end of his violence. Uh, and basically, once Mr. Putin has uh, like destroyed his army in, in, in Ukraine, he will be, how, how should I put it, Russia will be, will lose its teeth, so to speak. So uh, that's it, you know, Russia will be bankrupt and it will not have its army to kill the civilians in, in Europe or any other country. Uh, you have seen his bombings of residential areas. I mean, what military goals that achieves? None. He kills these people just to frighten the whole world and push them to talks, push him, uh, push the world to say, oh, no, no, this is too bad. We don't want to uh, fight with Russia and therefore we don't declare war in it. Uh, you know, let's uh, try to negotiate some peace terms. It's not going to happen. Mark, you're helping to get uh, Ukraine's message out to the world. But Thank are you. you prepared to take up arms yourself to fight the Russians? Sure. Uh, well, I'm in Kiev already. <laughs> Right. So, uh, I mean, it's uh, as close as it gets. So, yeah, the answer is yeah. Do you have weapons? I have an AR-15. It's a U.S. weapon, of course. And I bought it two years ago because I thought it would be a good idea to learn how to shoot because my country was at war. So, yeah. Looking ahead to the next 24 hours, what are you bracing for? Looking ahead a week from today, what are you bracing for? I'm sorry, but it's simply, it's impossible for me to tell because Mr. Putin once said that uh, he's putting his a nuclear arsenal on high alert. To me, sort of, uh, I don't really understand what can I explain to any sane person after Mr. Putin says that he's putting his uh, nuclear forces on high alert. Like for me, it's the most puzzling thing because uh, literally the whole world understands that Mr. Putin will kill everything in his way. We hope you stay safe and Thank thanks you. for joining us because it's really important to hear from people like you right now. Thank you very much. We now have with us our good friend, Dan Hoffman. Uh, Dan is a former CIA station chief in Moscow who spent many years tracking Vladimir Putin and his activities. Uh, Dan, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. It's been a while, but it's good to be back. Well, a good time to have you. As we sit here today, the reports are of this um, Russian military convoy, 40 miles long, headed right to Kiev. What do you expect over the next 
24 to 48 hours from the Russians. How far is Vladimir Putin going to go? You know, I, I got to tell you, I think Ukraine's darkest days are ahead of them, tragically. And I will tell you that, you know, this isn't the Vladimir Putin I was tracking back in the day at CIA. He's, this is a different guy. He won a lot of wars. He won, you know, a brutal war in Chechnya. He invaded Georgia in 2008, but didn't go too far. He took a couple of pieces of Georgia, but didn't try to take Tbilisi. He invaded Ukraine in 14 and took, you know, annexed Crimea and invaded the Donbass and kind of settled on a frozen conflict there. He was deployed Russian troops for the first time ever overseas since the fall of the Soviet Union to Syria and helped Assad remain in power, brutal dictator. And so Russia's complicit, along with Iran, their ally for those chemical weapons attacks and other attacks against innocent civilians. All those things were, you know, Vladimir Putin playing chess with limited but achievable objectives. This one, Vladimir Putin has altered his risk calculus. He's playing poker where he might not have the strongest hand. And it's up to our intelligence community to kind of figure out what cards he's got. But what concerns me is that the rules of engagement are the same. The tactics are the same. Deeply fearful, we're going to see something like Grozny or Aleppo, where you know Russia goes scorched earth because they have failed, utterly failed thus far. They've got supply chain issues, reportedly don't have enough food for their troops, bad logistics plaguing them. And we've seen the beginnings, at least, of some indiscriminate attacks on civilians and commensurate warnings to the West not to become involved. I want to ask you about you know what you said before about this being a different Putin. I'd love to get your insights into how he's changed, why you think he's changed, if you have a theory of the case. But before that, you know, you talked about the war in Chechnya. He has shown that he can be ruthless and incredibly brutal when it comes to war fighting. Talk about the Russian way of war and what you think he is capable of doing and what the tactic is. I mean, is he we, we've seen um, this incredible resistance from the Ukrainians, this uh, very inspiring reaction to the Russian invasion. But I guess the question is, um, how does he deal with that? And ultimately, is he going to try to just break their spirit by going after civilians, for example? Yeah, I don't think he's going to break their spirit ever. And we can talk about why that is. It's a separate conversation to have. But look, going back to forever, but let's just start with the Second World War. Russia has a different view of collateral damage. And they have a different view of, of casualties for their own. In our rules of engagement in the U.S., we do the best we possibly can not to strike civilian targets, not to strike non-combatants. We do the best we can to protect our own people. For the Russians, just look at the Battle of Stalingrad. That's kind of the way Vladimir Putin sees the world, I think. And when it comes to collateral damage, on a small scale, on a KGB, kind of smaller tactical cloak and dagger espionage scale, he just doesn't care. Think about the poisoning of Litvinenko with radioactive you know, polonium-210. So he created a human dirty bomb. And the guy, you know, and so Litvinenko infected London with that and, and died himself, tragically. Skripal, same thing, you know, a banned chemical nerve agent that resulted in, in non-combatants being killed and sick. There just is a, is a ends justify, you know, whatever means you want to use. That's kind of the way that they do things. And I'll just tell you a quick story 
I asked a, once a long time ago, a Russian intelligence officer, I asked him, I said, what is it about your neighbors and your tactics for dealing with them? And he said to me, he said, he said in Russian, he said, Daniel, you know, it's great. Daniel, слушай, listen. Uh, you know, he said, listen, let's just say you have a really nice house. And I don't. My house is a crappy house. I'm just going to go burn yours down. That's kind of the way we think. So Vladimir Putin, he's going to burn down Ukraine's house. And he feels like he can't exist on this planet if Ukraine is striving for freedom, liberty, and democracy and economic links to the West. That was where they were headed. And Vladimir Putin can't let that happen because if he does, his own people see this Russian-speaking population in Ukraine, a neighbor, enjoying commercial prosperity and liberty and freedom, all the things that are denied to Russians because Putin is a kleptocrat and a dictator. And that's a clarion call for Putin's own opposition. But in doing this, and this is why I get back to the risk calculus for Vladimir Putin, he could have had, he basically could have subdued the West without firing a shot by walking his 990,000 troops back. He could have probably gotten autonomy for Donbass, not the oblast, not the whole region, but the part of it that Russia occupied, a frozen conflict. He could have probably eliminated a bunch of sanctions, and he might have been able to extract other concessions from us, not to the point of denying Ukraine NATO membership, but they weren't going to join anyways. You know, there's, there was no way a week ago that France and Germany were going to admit Ukraine. And now, you know, thanks to Zelensky, who's an extraordinary leader, you know, Ukraine was, was, was looking to join NATO a couple of weeks ago, and now it's NATO joining Ukraine in the fight for freedom and liberty and democracy, standing up for what matters. It's like Zelensky jolted Western democracies out of a post-Cold War slumber, and here they are, taking on a brutal dictator who is an anathema to everything that, that we believe in. I mean, that's, that's the story for me. If Putin is no longer the man that you've been studying for, let's say, the majority of your career, and that most Western democracies have been carefully analyzing, how are the Western states today adapting to this new understanding of Putin? Are they doing a good job of it or are they stumped right now? That's the key question. You know, I can tell you the number one reoccurring question that President Biden is asking the intelligence community is, give me the leadership on Vladimir, leadership profile on Vladimir Putin. No, 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 no. Not the one from February 22. I need the one from today because he's not the same guy. You know, there are all kinds of rumors about his whatever might be wrong with him medically. Senator Marco Rubio said that he had neuropsychological issues. Rubio sits on the Senate Intel Committee wouldn't go into detail about sources and methods, wouldn't go into further detail about exactly what that means, but that's a very important statement that he made. And so for sure, nothing more important for our intelligence community than understanding what makes him tick. The Russians say, Chem what makes a person breathe? They want to know that about us, and we want to know that about him. We also want to know it about his key you know, inner circle advisors, and typical in Russian, you know, the Lord loves the Trinity, there's three of them, Minister of Defense Shoigu, uh, Director FSB Bortnikov and the National Security Advisor Patrushev. The rest of them probably don't matter right now, but they all have their constituencies. So the Shoigu is responsible for everyone serving in the Ministry of Defense, and he's got to manage that. And Bortnikov, you know, has got to manage the FSB. And so what we might see are the Russian elites changing their assessment of Vladimir Putin. We may learn a lot about what 
Vladimir, what's making him tick from those elites who are watching him and thinking, holy shit, we thought this was brinkmanship. And he's taken us to a war that is destroying our economy and, and, and our guys are committing war crimes against our neighboring country where, you know, with whom we share such familial, in many cases, bonds. Just to put a point on that, does that mean we're kind of flying blind right now in no, terms of no. our understanding of him? No, I think we're mounting a full court press to collect intelligence on Vladimir Putin. And so I don't believe we're flying blind at all, but we would all be speculating about that because it's super secret classified information. But I can tell you just from what I know in the intelligence community, when we set our sights on a target, we're pretty good at collecting. And we also rely you know, on our own collection. We rely on the collection of other, other, other intelligence agencies. Priority number one, you know, understanding Vladimir Putin. And you know, we've had a lot of contact with him. There have been summits. Remember, President Biden met him in the summit just a few months back. That is your opportunity to size him up. For sure, everyone in our delegation was taking a look at Vladimir Putin's health. We have people in the intelligence community who look at foreign leaders just on television and assess how healthy or not healthy they are based on that. We've actually seen this guy up close. So we're not going to know. We in the, in the, you know, outside of the intelligence community probably aren't going to know the extent to which we know stuff about Vladimir Putin, but I'm thinking that it's pretty good. Dan, on that point, you and many others have talked about how Putin has changed and you say he's not the guy you tracked for many years. And yet the examples Many of the examples you cited about Putin's brutality have been a matter of public record for decades. I mean, the you know horrific leveling of Chechnya was the early 2000s. You mentioned uh, the polonium poisoning of Litvinenko. That was 2006. And then the invasion of Georgia was 2008. So it seems like, you know, there has been a long trail of really ugly misbehavior by this guy. Yes. What should we make of the way the West, the United States, the UK, other Western allies have responded over the years? And as you look back, did we not do enough to deter him much, much earlier? Right. So you have a good long list there. I'll add a few more. Downing a Malaysian airliner, interfering in our elections and the elections in, uh, in, in European elections. He has gotten away with a lot. And it's telling that after I remember this extremely well, after Russia invaded Georgia, they're still occupying Georgia. And what's the policy of the Obama administration? Reset. Like at the time, excuse me, but I'm going to go Leon Panetta. And I was thinking like, what the fuck? Reset. Are you kidding me with this guy after what he just did? And the attack on Georgia eerily similar to what he's doing in Ukraine. He, they called it genocide, which it wasn't. And they used brutal tactics. It was a hybrid war, but he stopped. He didn't go all the way to Tbilisi. And if memory serves, it was our Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, who flew into Tbilisi and helped negotiate an off-ramp there. Completely different from what we're in, kind of situation we're in today. I liken this behavior by Vladimir Putin to General Secretary Brezhnev, who was a ruthless bastard also, but then took it to another level with the decision in the last couple of years of his life to invade Afghanistan and cause massive harm and, and you know, death to civilians in Afghanistan and destroy that country. And in the process, drive a whole bunch of nails into that Soviet evil empire's coffin. 
why Vladimir Putin would take this risk. He is being less risk averse than he's ever been, not coldly calculating. Was it a blind spot? He never served in the military. He knows cloak and dagger espionage. He's kind of a, a chief of station, if I could use an example of a guy who, you know, his formative experiences in the KGB, he ran the FSB. That's kind of how he's run Russia in a lot of ways, and it's worked for him. But he doesn't have, some would argue, he doesn't have that ability to do the big picture strategy. But, but on this one for Ukraine, I mean, what an intelligence failure. That's what I get back to and why things have changed. This is what he knows. He's a KGB guy. You ought to know the will and the capacity of your enemy to fight. Did he not know that? Did he not know that his own military wasn't, at least up to now, up to the task? Dan, I, mean, I got one one quick follow-up on, yeah. on U.S. policy over the years. In 1991, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and the United States and Western allies went to war to yep. expel him. Now, we have Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine, and you know President Biden has taken the use of U.S. troops off the table. How do you square the way we responded to Saddam Hussein in 1991 with how we are responding to Vladimir Putin in 2022? I'm glad you asked that because I've thought so much about it. That was, you know, I entered government service before the Cold War ended in 89. And so that I was, I had already begun serving in, in the government when Saddam invaded Kuwait and President George Herbert Walker Bush built a global coalition. And we deployed in defense of, of Saudi Arabia and then launched that invasion, but it was a global coalition. And we took the lead. And that was the beginning of this new world order that we have enjoyed until, well, you could say a week ago, February 24th was a real turning point. The difference obviously is that Russia has nuclear weapons. And what this administration is trying to do is thread the needle, avoid direct conflict with Russia, so we're not going to enforce a no-fly zone. We could fly right over that convoy and destroy the whole thing. But then, you know, you're, that's the same in Russia's eyes as Russia invading Estonia. So we're going to try to provide Ukraine with the military and humanitarian assistance that they need. We're going to, launch, we're going to use lots of economic pressure on Russia. But direct kinetic conflict, no. And we didn't do that during the Cold War either. We fought a lot of proxy wars against the Soviet Union and never engaged Directly. Now, the Soviets were responsible for a lot of American soldiers dying, but never directly. And so I think if it were me, I would have suggested that President Biden not rule anything out. I don't know why he said we aren't going to put troops there. Don't you don't need to tell the enemy what we're doing or what we're thinking about. To me, that was just a, a throw for you know, domestic political consumption and not particularly helpful. He should have said, look, everything's on the table. Don't unilaterally take stuff off the table. But is it reasonable to expect that we should do that? Absolutely not. That would be the last thing that we'd want to do. But the bigger question is, can we live on this planet with Vladimir Putin in the position that he's in right now? Like that, if I could, if President Biden were on skullduggery, that's what I'd ask him. What do you think about that? Right. You know, and the other thing I would just say is, in contrast to 1990, 1991, the guy who's built the coalition, it's Zelensky, you know, Forget the strong arm tactics of President Trump or the, you know, more gentler, kindler build, you know, relationships uh, with NATO partners that, that President Biden has, has favored. Forget all that stuff. What has brought us all together has been this Ukrainian freedom fighter, a, a Jewish comedian who was kicking the shit out of, out of Vladimir Putin. 
who is a 21st century leader who understands social media and understands how to get the message out to his own people and to get the kind of support that he needs internationally. If you listen to his speech today to the European Parliament, I mean, just extraordinary ability that he has to communicate. He is the great 21st century communicator. You know, I have a, my friend Mark Polymeropoulos wrote uh, that book, Clarity in Crisis. And Mark and I agree, you know, leaders aren't born, they're made. They're made in, in the middle of a crisis. And that's what we're seeing from, from Zelensky. He's got, the, you know, the, the world, at least those of us in the West who, who believe in freedom, liberty, and democracy, rising up in support of those sacred principles enshrined in our Constitution and Bill of Rights on the Ukrainian battlefield. Well, wow, good on him. That's unexpected. So, Dan, I mean, when you were uh, in, in the intelligence community, you were paid to understand the leaders of rival nations, including Putin. And I know that you can't be inside his head, but you must have theories as to why he has evolved the way he has. I mean, you know, from, from being this calculating, cunning person who knows where the limits are to what he's doing now. What is your theory? So my theory is he's a guy who likes to project strength. He's a guy who likes to ride his horses half naked and do judo throws and look like a tough guy. But time is not on Russia's side, you know, and he's weaker before he attacked Ukraine. He was weaker than he was five years ago, 10 years ago. He is haunted by orange revolution in Ukraine, Arab Spring, neighbors that are prosperous, NATO members like, Bal like the Baltic states that are prosperous economically. And he's haunted by the fact that his own country, men and women, are extremely disenchanted with his leadership. They've come out and protest before, I mean, before the war, they were protesting. They've been doing that for a long time. The protests in Belarus in the summer of 2020, you know, he helped Lukashenko shut those down. But the repression will only go so far. His message of stability and economic growth, blah, 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 all that stuff's gotten kind of old for the regular Russians, uh, the younger ones in particular. And so he sees this threat, you know, from Ukraine that is going to blow right back on his regime security in a way that he just can't allow because he's weaker. He can't withstand it anymore. You know, he killed, he killed, let me just add one thing. He killed Boris Nemtsov in 2015, a zero, I mean, good guy. I met him in Estonia, smart guy. Why did he do that? Well, he did it because he's got to show he's the most ruthless guy. You know, that's, that's the reason. Why did, you, why did he try to kill Navalny with a banned chemical nerve agent that's got, you know, breadcrumbs leading all the way back to the Kremlin? Same thing with Skitty Paul, because you've got to show that if you mess with me, if you betray me, I will kill you, and I'm going to do it in a way that you're not going to like. It's not a, they could have taken a hammer to Skitty Paul's head and killed him. Same thing with Navalny. But they had to show, Putin had to show that he was still the most ruthless guy. He's got to show his own, his own guys that he's that, and he's got to show the population writ large. The last thing I want to tell you is he lived through the KGB coup in 1991 against Gorbachev when the population was up in arms about the failures. The expectations were rising with Glasnost and Perestroika, but then they realized behind that is zero. And so the KGB saw that Gorbachev just wasn't the guy. You had to be more ruthless, not less ruthless, and they removed him. And that is why Vladimir Putin ultimately perceiving himself as weaker than he's ever been, in my estimation, lashes out at Ukraine. And, and it, it, that has ramifications for how this ends, which is not, you know, it, it's only going to get worse. 
And the ultimate question is whether the Russian military decides they've had enough committing war crimes and they decide, you know what? This Vladimir Putin guy is gonna have to be thrown off to the side, cast aside, take the blame for all of this. We were just following orders, sir, and move on. That's it. You got to something that I wanted to to get to, which is, is there any off-ramp from this right now, aside from what you just described, which is either complete devastation to Ukraine or an internal coup? I mean, that's what I wonder is, you know, historically, when you've got dictators who launch brazen attacks like this, the likes of which we haven't seen since World War II, what's the off-ramp? I mean, I don't know. What could the off-ramp be? Vladimir Putin is is super close to not having an off-ramp. Could he have one today? He might, but he's also got to know that even if he goes and chooses the diplomatic off-ramp, his own inner circle is going to say, what the fuck did you just do to our economy and our standing in the world? And you made us look pretty bad too. You know what? And then the knives come out and he gets stabbed in the back and the face and he's done. He's gone to... You know, or or at best for him, he's had heart issues and he's over at the, you know, health clinic getting care over there. So as a leader, like forget Russia. It's always been about regime security. That's Vladimir Putin's security. And this is about him. And I think he's probably caused irreparable harm to his international standing. But I just can't I just have a hard time imagining how he can't take this to the end because he, if he stops now, he's still finished. I just, I just don't know it. I'd ask that. Your question is such the right question to ask. If you were in the situation room, the real one, with uh, President Biden, that'd be the question to ask. That's the, that's the question. Dan, uh, you have been a Fox News contributor for a number of years now. I'd like to know what goes through your mind when you hear somebody like Tucker Carlson on Fox News defending Vladimir Putin, saying he's never done anything to you or me. Why should we support uh, uh, Ukraine over Russia, which is a message that is resonating with some large segment of the Fox News audience? Yeah. So I'll leave my I mean, I've never been on Tucker's show, but I'll leave my um you know, Fox News colleagues out of it. I'll just say that probably like everybody, when I watch the news and I watch lots of, you know, different programs and I, you know, faithful listener of the Skullduggery podcast, and there's things that I agree with and there are things that I don't agree with. And at the end of the day, all I can do, and I found this at CIA too, but all I can do is deliver my analysis with no predisposed ideological bias. And I can tell you that in the course of my career, I probably annoyed as many Democrats as I did Republicans and vice versa. And all I could do was just put my head to the pillow at night, knowing that I, I, I gave it the best I had. I think that there are plenty out there, plenty of folks out there who, politicians and news anchors, who like to start with their view of the world and then kind of feed things through that. That's not how I do it. I'm always available and happy to debate those people, but... Haven't had that opportunity. Well, let me just ask it another way, leaving aside your Fox News colleagues. Are you concerned that Russian propaganda is permeating the American political dialogue? And we have folks in this country who are effectively fifth columnists opposing U.S. policy, supporting Russian policy. I think there's a spectrum there. You know, so in our domestic scene, 
there is a swath of people in this country who say, I'm tired of Iraq, Afghanistan wars, I want out. Very similar to the isolationism that we saw in the 20s and 30s. So they don't want to be economically isolated. They want trade with the world, but they don't want us to be involved politically. And that's a swath of our population. They are susceptible to the, hey, Ukraine's far away. Why should we care about Ukraine? What does that matter? I've been asked that plenty of times on Fox, and you can, people can go back and, and listen to what I said about it. What I always tell people is the lesson of the last century was that when we are not involved with the major issues of the world, then we pay the price. And you know, my family fought in all those wars in the last century. And we spend more time in this country sometimes talking about whether it's okay for somebody to kneel like at a, you know, at the national anthem. I don't care. You know, we spend a lot of time on that kind of cultural stuff. My family, I got family members who got, who were, who were injured and killed to fight for our freedom to either stand or not stand for the flag. You know, we don't live in North Korea. You can do as you please. You might or might not like it if somebody kneels. That's also your prerogative, but <laughs> we have freedoms here. And people who don't want the United States to be involved in Ukraine are certainly free to say what they wish to say. And I wouldn't label all of those people as, as a fifth column, but I also feel like we've got some explaining to do. And that's over to those like President Biden or on the Republican side, you know, there are plenty of Republicans right now coming out in support of, of Ukraine. Got to explain to the population writ large, like why this matters. And if there's still 20% or 30% of the population who doesn't think it matters, then our elected officials are failing us because they ought to be able to explain to people, hey, this is why Ukraine matters. You know, whether it's the, the chaos there impacts the $15 trillion GDP of the European Union. It's the Black Sea that impacts our NATO ally, Turkey. It's just standing up for what's right. If you're a Republican, maybe look at what Ronald Reagan used to say about a city on a hill. There's all sorts of those things. I'm not going to try to force my own ideas on anybody else, but we do need our president, like tonight, the State of the Union, get up on the bully pulpit and tell us all why Ukraine matters and why Zelensky is somebody we should all hold in the highest regard for the leadership that he's delivered. And speak to, while I'm at it, the Russian people and speak to the Russian military and speak to Vladimir Putin as well. That was the great gift of, of FDR, who led a country that was totally not interested in fighting another war after the First World War, which was a not uncommon feeling in Europe. He led us into the Second World War because he had that ability to lead, not to be led. And I think too many times our politicians are trying to give the, the, their constituents back what the constituents want to hear. And I can tell you, at the CIA, I told our elected officials what they need to know, not what they want to hear. I don't care what they want to hear. I'm going to tell them what they need to know. And a lot of our politicians, in my view at least, and I'm not a politician, but obviously, but they don't tell the are people what they need to know. Yeah, they tell yeah. them what they want to hear. Dan, just before we uh, we wrap here, I just want to go back to the beginning of the conversation and kind of uh, Putin's tactics uh, against the Ukrainians and, and kind of tradecraft. Uh, there was a lot of talk about how he was going to send in teams of you know saboteurs and and assassins and you know either either kidnap or assassinate Zelensky. That hasn't happened yet i just wonder from your perspective yeah. did we, we buy into it. the did we yeah. are we buying into the putin mythology or <laughs> is he not capable of doing that what do you think is right. going on there no it's such a it's a great point um look i think that would have been part of the plan to send in 
Wagner mercenaries to conduct a non quote unquote non attributable decapitation strike against Ukrainian government leadership. They would have sent them in, you know, weeks, months before the attack in order to be there to conduct surveillance and mount these attacks. The fact that Zelensky's still alive means they haven't been successful, but I don't doubt that they're there. I don't doubt based on Chechnya and other places that the FSB is there, that, you know, that this is an FSB, this is part of the FSB's territory. So they would be there, the Russian intelligence officers would be there conducting all sorts of operations, intelligence gathering, but then also the cloak and dagger attacks against Ukrainian officials and things like that. I mean, they're certainly, I think they're there, but I also think Ukraine knows their neighbor, you know, and so the Ukrainians have an intelligence service. The Russians just bombed it today, the SBU. I mean, Ukrainians have, they know the Russians as well. And so they've, they've taken countermeasures and good on them for doing it. But I don't think this is, the, the fact that no one, we haven't seen the results of attacks doesn't mean that the Russians aren't trying to do it. Uh, it just means I think that Ukraine is, is countering it. To get back to just one, I mean, the big point earlier that we made too, it's just, we failed to deter Russia at the end of the day. The Biden administration thought that sanctions, the threat of sanctions and the threat of us supporting an insurgency or guerrilla war would be enough to do it. And it wasn't. That means we need to reassess the safety and security and deterrence capability of all of our other NATO members on the border with Russia. I'm sure we're doing it. But that's also a key intelligence collection requirement. Like how dangerous is it now for the Baltic states, for, for Poland, Romania, Slovakia? very difficult, uh, perilous times. You mentioned that there are some very dark days ahead for Ukraine. How do you assess the mood in the Ukraine? What is their resolve? They will, they'll all die. They'll hold out to the end till they're all dead. I mean, I swear they, um, the Russians talk about their, this bishabashna vlajnas, this like reckless courage. It's what they have. They're fighting for their, families and their land. And they've been fighting for eight years, but now it's reached this point. I, I swear they're going to fight to the end. Sobering thoughts for all of us to contemplate about. Uh, Dan, I want to thank you again for your keen insights on this issue. And we will definitely want to stay in touch as this crisis unfolds. Thanks. Thanks.